Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Hello and welcome to the World Cricket Show, the world's favourite cricket show, still just about staggering on, despite both of the hosts suddenly losing interest in cricket for some reason. My name is Adam Bayfield and I'm one of those hosts, and I'm generally considered to be the more knowledgeable of the two, the more professional of the two, the funnier of the two, very much the more handsome of the two. Uh, And also here is the other host, Tony Kerr. Very modest. How's it going this week, Tone? All good. Yeah, all good. You're very relaxed. Just as we were about to get going, you leaned back in your chair, folded one leg over the other, clicked your fingers at me and went, good to go when you are. <laughs> and I said, are you recording? And you went, oh, right, no, actually, I'm not. <laughs> Far too relaxed, then. Yeah, well, that's like the sort of vibe I want to bring. You know? And again, it's a late night session, isn't it? Mm. It's a, a day-nighter. Or just a nighter. Just a nighter, exactly. An all-nighter. Well, you've just been playing football. Yeah, you've just come back from playing football, and you're still where. As I arrived, you went. Oh, I haven't had time to have a shower yet, and you're still wearing your football kit. Yeah, I've just changed the shirt, it, and this is a very small room in here, Tone. It's you. I feel sorry for. I know the listeners don't have to put up with this, but I do. It should be all right. It'll be all right. I'm just going to get very hot. Oh, that'll help. I, sh- I should say I'm wearing those sort of leggings uh, that you see that you see the footballers wearing these days, uh, and I am very much footballer, so you know and get away with it yeah so that's a nice image for the listeners isn't it a, a uh, extraordinarily sweaty tony kerr wearing leggings sweaty beleggings man <laughs> cooped up in here with me uh to chat about cricket speaking of which on a scale of a bit glum to really quite down in the dumps how miserable have you been this week tone after england's four nil ashes defeat was confirmed uh it was yeah, it was a very limp ending to the series, wasn't it? And I, I do think that's we'll come on to it, I'm sure. <laughs> At least I expect, we to, I expect do, us to. Do you think we'll talk about the Ashes tonight? I mean, who, who knows? Shouldn't think so. Yeah, we'll come on to it, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, it wasn't a classic series by any measure. Uh, there were classic performances, obviously, but certainly the the trajectory of the series from a spectacle standpoint wasn't the best, was it? Let's be honest. No. Uh, It couldn't have been worse, actually, in terms (laughs) of, you know, in terms of building tension over the course of a five-test series and then releasing an exciting crescendo. Yeah, the the last couple of tests, these two dead rubbers have uh, rather taken the air out of my balloon. (laughs) Um, It has been... Well, shall I... I mean, we're talking about this as though people know what we're talking about shall i uh shall i run through what happened in the game for yeah. anyone who anyone who only listens to the world creature that's the only source of uh of, of cricket news they're banging the desk in frustration tell us what happened <laughs> uh well la- when we last left you uh england had pulled off a heroic draw in melbourne 
and we were probably sounding quite chipper about things. Well, we're not feeling quite so chipper now after, yes, a, a very uh, one-sided test in Sydney. A, a, a one-sided series, really, ending with a one-sided match as, yeah, Australia cruising to another massive victory. Um, I haven't brought up the scorecards yet. That's quite poor, isn't it? Um, uh, is Why is it so hard to find scorecards on the internet, like on Google? <sighs> Sorry. Adam's just writing into Google, Google <laughs> England, Australia, Ashes scorecard internet online. He's not getting much For back. For some reason it's not working. Here we are. But then you go on Crick Info and videos start playing. It's an absolute nightmare. Right, okay, I've got it. England won the toss again, the fourth time in five tests that they won the toss. Uh, they chose the bat, uh, but once again just didn't make enough runs. They were doing well at 228 for three, but once again didn't capitalise on a good start. Half centuries for Joe Root and David Milan, but they were bowled out for 346. Pat Cummins taking four wickets. Australia, in response, got off to a terrible start. Cam Bancroft went early and England would have been, you know, feeling like they were in the game, but then Australia just ground them into the dirt. Uh, three centurions, Usman Kawaja, 171, Sean Marsh, 156, and Mitchell Marsh, 101, uh, as they racked up 649 for seven, declared. That put them a long way ahead on first innings with a lot of time left. And for England, it was really a case of battling to survive. And it, you never felt they were going to do that. It never looked like they were going to do that. Uh, and indeed, uh, they were bowled out on the final day for just 180. Joe Root had to retire after suffering from severe dehydration. Uh, and that was a, a undeserved, but in some ways, uh, symbolic way for his series to end. Pat Cummins took four wickets again as Australia sealed the victory by an innings and 123 runs. So, Tony, as I say, on last week's show, we... At this point, we probably sound naively chipper if you go back and, and listen to, to last week's show. We were, we were certainly striking a, a moderately optimistic note about England's performance in Melbourne. But you made the good point. You made the uncharacteristically good point that um, ultimately how that Melbourne performance would be judged would depend a lot on what happened in Sydney. If, if England were to go on and win in Sydney, then maybe we'd start to think that the complexion of the series changes a little bit but you said if England lose by an innings in Sydney then you know Melbourne looks irrelevant England did lose by an innings uh, so presumably in your book there's no getting away from the fact that this has been another disaster of an Ashes tour yeah I mean part of me thinks it, it's I think I've been saying it throughout the series and again you might think I'm naive and stupid but it you know, I do think that, but go on. For England to get 346 yeah, in the first innings, pretty much all the batsmen getting in, they've not been completely rolled over in that sense there. You know, again, the, they had a, they had a, there was a spark of something, but then it was just, it just evaporated very soon after. And then, and then it was desperate after that. I mean, by the time you've got Kawaja and the Marsh brothers, as you say, getting like grinding you into the ground in the other final test. It's a, it's a little bit depressing given that before the series, well, you know, Mitch Marsh obviously wasn't there, but you'd have said, and Quadra didn't have a great series, but you would have said uh, overall, you know, if those guys are scoring runs, it's, you know, things aren't going, you know, things aren't really going to plan. Uh, and then, yeah, a very limp final 
innings uh, and a pretty depressing all-round ending. Depressing is the word, I think. This was definitely the most depressing, the most dispiriting defeat of all the many defeats on this tour because England were nowhere at all from the first morning of the game and that hasn't actually been the case in any other of the other games. I mean, at this point, it's it's quite easy to think that the whole thing has been incredibly one-sided, which as a whole it has been. But there have been, in all of the first three games, there were moments where England were well in the game and sometimes on top. Certainly at Brisbane, the first, what, three days, three and a half days, it felt like anyone's game. It felt like we could be in for a really competitive series and then Australia ran away with it. There were moments in Adelaide, obviously when England uh, bowled Australia out on the fourth day, you know, there were moments where England were well in that. The first day at Perth, when Bairstow and Milan got hundreds and England were, what, 360 for four, England were on top. This is the only one where really the whole way through, they've been nowhere. And what's depressing about that is you might expect that as the series goes on, England might come into it more, that the gap between the teams would close as they get more used to the conditions, more used to the bowlers they're facing. But actually the opposite has happened and, and that really is disappointing. In terms of the series as a whole, it has been a very one-sided series, despite those moments where England have been in it. You, know, you can't argue that, they've, that it's been anything other than one-sided. They have been completely outplayed, which in a sense is not unexpected. And you do ultimately just have to say well done to Australia. But there are a couple of things that are worrying me. Firstly, it's that they didn't appear to see this coming. And you know there have been quite a few quotes in the aftermath that have been quite troubling in that respect and, it, and not even just in the aftermath but if you think back to I think after the first test Trevor Bayliss said you know when he was asked something about oh, you know are you worried about the tail the English lower order and they've been blown away by these Australian bowlers both in both innings are you worried about that and he said something to the effect of oh well at least we know what to expect now and at the time I thought well you probably could have predicted before the series that that is what's going to happen that they're going to you know that those fast bowlers are going to target those lower lower order batsmen bowl short at them you know those are things that surely they could have prepared for I mean you can't necessarily there's not necessarily much you can do to I don't know make Jake Ball and Stuart Broad better batsmen or, or give them middle practice against bowlers of that quality but still it was a, it was an odd thing to say and right from the beginning you know and I talked about this a lot the squad that they selected wasn't the right squad they picked James Vince to bat at three based on absolutely nothing when he'd you know failed at his one go at test cricket and not scored any runs in the county championship after that they picked him to bat three that was a hunch that was nothing more than a hunch but everyone else seemingly everyone outside of that England bubble knew that James Vince had a problem outside off stump that you know he had this problem where he nicked off against high quality bowling just outside off stump so if everyone else knew that why didn't the selectors and you can go right through the squad. The only spinner, the only spinners that they picked were Moe Nally, more of whom later, uh, and Mason Crane, who'd only played about 25 first-class matches before this tour. I don't know, just from, from whatever it was, like the 19th of September, I thought that England had no chance in this series because they'd, they, they just weren't going into it with the right squad in place. And that's, right from the get-go, that was very frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I, I predicted 4-1 Australia... I think you... Did you have 4-0? I went 3-1. 3-1. But I wanted to go 4-1, but <laughs> you uh, you got in there first. You, well, you'd still have been wrong. You elbowed your way in there first. How many tests would it take, do you think, if they kept on playing for England to win one at this point? Well, as I say, the, the 
the worrying thing is that the gap appears to be widening. So who knows? Yeah, despite predicting 4-1, I still... I still I suppose I've got every right to be disappointed because England didn't win a test, but I'm probably more disappointed than I expected to be. I thought it would be a 4-1, but England would show a little bit more. Well, as I say, I, I'm worried that I may have overplayed my hand just before because in saying that England were in three of the tests that they lost, which they were, but nonetheless, they all ended up being very convincing defeats. And I, as I say, I've, I've been... It's worrying to me that they weren't able to see some of this coming. And that's also what's connected to that is the fact that it now appears that they're deluded about how this series has gone. They, they were deluded before the series in the squad that they picked and expected it to do well. And it seems like they're still deluded now. I mean, some of the quotes that have come out from Paul Farbrace, you know, we talked about his charge of the light brigade <laughs> moment in this test as well, where he keeps saying things like, oh, we think we've done all right. We think we bowled quite well today and that kind of stuff. Jimmy Anderson has said, this doesn't really feel like a disaster. There was a Johnny Bairstow interview on, on Test Match Special where he said something along the lines of, you know, I think it's laughable that people are questioning someone like Moeen Ali when he's, you know, when he's done so brilliantly for England up till now, which A, I would question, but B, even if that is true, and I don't doubt the sincerity of Bairstow there, and I understand why he would feel like that. I, you know, obviously people get defensive when they feel they're under attack, but it just doesn't seem like a, a smart thing to say when when England have been outplayed to this extent. I mean, it, I agree with Anderson in the sense that this doesn't maybe feel quite as seismic a moment as the defeat four years ago it's did. It's not a whitewash, so... It's not a whitewash. You know, it's not all doom and gloom. <laughs> but four years ago, like, that that spelled the end of several very successful high-quality test cricketers' careers, didn't it? In Matt Pryor, Kevin Peterson, Graham Swan, Jonathan Trott. This doesn't feel like that the gulf isn't quite as big as it was then. But nonetheless, we're looking at a series where England haven't won a match, where they've scored 300s to Australia's 10, and where their bowlers have taken 58 wickets out of a possible 100. I think Australia took 89. So, you know, there's really no getting away from the fact that this has been, that England have been nowhere near good enough. And And it it worries me that they don't appear to quite grasp that. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, there, there are very good players in this England team you know when you you compare sort of man for man the performances and and it's probably up for debate as to how much you can expect from people given the favorability of the conditions to one side you know I'll keep going on about it you know Australia still need you know still keep losing when they come to England in recent times so it's not you know they should look back at previous tours and 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 walk away probably thinking like yeah we haven't really done very well here which is which is I know that's sort of slightly grasping or clasping. Well, and also they've probably been more competitive. They have. Than England have. Aside from when England won seven years ago, you know, there, there has been no Ashes series in our lifetime when England have been in it. Whereas <laughs> Australia have, you know, Ashes series in Australia, I mean. Uh, whereas Australia and England, obviously they won loads up until 2005, but 2005, they were clearly in it until the very end. Yeah. 2009, went to the Oval with the series still up for grabs. 2013 finished 3-0 but that it came away from that feeling that Australia had been a little bit hard done by by that scoreline and obviously 2015 they won two tests no I agree it's not quite the same but I there is there, yeah and I think you know you the selections beforehand the mentality you know England by misfortune or bad design certainly arrived at this this Ashes series in not the best shape uh to compete and then they didn't compete and that the players that you felt would be well equipped to compete 
or should be good enough to, to handle it, you know, Root for one, you know, that, that's a bit of a conundrum at this point, I think, because, yeah, it's a real shame. 550s in the series, obviously, is the much documented poor conversion rate. Uh, and, you know, the more he does that, it's, the less it's going to help him, isn't it? <laughs> so yeah. it's tough. It's like when I kept getting ducks, you know, you do... But it's but it probably even well, more perplexing. Was it? Because it was fairly obvious what I was doing wrong. <laughs> just, well, your <laughs> missing straight balls. Your staggering lack of talent was uh, not, no, it was up there. not helping. With, what was it, 13 ducks in a I, row? It's been exaggerated. <laughs> I think it was, in reality, it was probably about six, which is bad no, enough. it was more than six. It was, th- it was probably somewhere between six, six to 13. Six to 13. Then, of course, when you finally scored a run, you raised your bat. Yeah. <laughs> That's all of us on our feet saluting and applauding well yeah i mean heaven knows what root's gonna do when he uh, gets through for his next hundred if he gets through. i mean he obviously you know he's a brilliant player uh, and so great to watch and i you know potentially you have to ask questions about whether he's the right man to be captain just because you know if it is inhibiting his batting in any way then maybe you have to look at a different direction but th- that comes with its own pitfalls doesn't it yeah i'm with you i think i think this really does you know, throw open the question of whether Root should be captain. And th- there's absolutely no way that he's going to lose his job after this. And, and the fact that it's come so early in his career makes that makes it impossible, really, for like just politically, if nothing else, the ECB are not going to make the decision to get rid of him. And clearly, he's a very popular man. Uh, well, A, in the dressing room, but B, in, at ECB Towers. There is no chance, unless he decides he doesn't want to do it, there is no chance that he's losing his job as a result of this series. But for me... I don't think he is the right man for the job. And I did, to be fair to me, and I like to be fair to me, I didn't think he was the right man at the time. The only reason that I'd have given Root the job is because there's nobody else. There's no other obvious candidates. And that's still the case. So that, that probably might, you know, that could be enough. Or there's an argument to keep him in the job because there's no other obvious candidates. But I'm beginning to think, we'll just give it to somebody else because what it's doing at the moment is weakening what should be England's biggest strength. He's, yeah, this this as you say, this conversion problem is very well documented, but I don't think it's a coincidence that it seems to be getting much worse. It's gotten much worse in the year that he's been captain because, you know, just uh, we've seen it happen to virtually every England captain. It's almost always been the best batsman that gets given the captaincy, whether that's Michael Vaughan or Andrew Strauss or Alistair Cook. And eventually it begins to take its toll because, you know, the, the pressure, it's very difficult. They're, they're having to think about all these things that we talk about endlessly and not just focus on their batting. And and people would say, and rightly so, well, it doesn't seem to have done Steve Smith any harm. It doesn't seem to have done Virat Kohli any harm, Kane Williamson. I think partly that's a sort of chicken and egg thing where if the team is doing well, then it's probably easier to focus on your batting. And if you're Steve Smith and you've got those bowlers to call on, there's not as much to think about in terms of captaincy. And I think as well, you know, Root probably looks up and down the batting order and thinks, you know, if I'm not getting the runs, where are they going to come from? You know, who knows what's going through his head and why he's getting out, you know, when he is. But, you know, once he's in, he's probably thinking, you know, I've got to, I've got to go big here. I don't, yeah, who knows? You know, you can't put yourself into his, into his uh, helmet. But yeah. That's what I mean. It's, it's just, it's pressure, isn't yeah. it? It's, there's so much pressure on him. And also it, it comes down a bit to character, doesn't it? And I, I while I, he seems like a thoroughly decent guy a thoroughly likable guy he's never seemed like a natural leader to me i never saw him as an obvious captain i i, I you never would have thought well even if it affects his batting a little bit the advantage the, the benefit that will be accrued by making him captain through his 
tactical ability or his ability as a, a leader, his force of, of leadership would make it worth it. I don't see that. I don't see that England are a better team with Root as captain and they're certainly not a better team by l- losing something from, from Root the batsman. So yeah, there, there might not be a, an obvious replacement, but I, I just think give it to someone. They'll probably give it to Vince for New Zealand. <laughs> well, it might, be, it might be worth it. <laughs> it honestly might be worth it. In terms of the wider thing, we obviously talked a bit last time, or, or at least after the Perth test, that you know there are all these systemic problems in the English game. I mean, this is like a sort of coming into it. We expected England to lose. You know, you predicted four one. I predicted three one. We, we expected England to lose and lose heavily. So the fact that they have is it really that surprising? No, not necessarily. But nonetheless, as an England fan, I think you're entitled to be upset, not necessarily with the performance of these specific players. But I think you can be upset that England aren't more competitive in Australia and actually away from home generally, given the resources of the ECB. I think you can ask searing questions of people like Andrew Strauss and Tom Harrison. And, you know, a lot of this sort of predates them, but they don't seem to be doing much about it. But the failure to produce players or not the right kind of players, the fact that we're really struggling to produce batsmen who are good enough, that don't seem to be fast bowlers coming through, spinners coming through, now, those are questions that you can ask and it, it, it it's like most of the disciplines basically <laughs> yeah, yeah and it runs deep doesn't it from from the structure of the county season to the quality of coaching at Loughborough to like very um uh, broad issues like you know the, the lack of cricket on free-to-air tv and those are all separate debates that we can have and probably will at some point i'm sure but you know there's a lot of things that that is what Strauss and Harrison get paid for, isn't it? Is to to look at those kinds of questions, and I don't know that they're necessarily um, answering them in the right way at the moment. But as I say, even within those parameters, I, I I'm not convinced that this current England setup went about this series, went about planning this series, preparing for this series in the right way. I don't think they picked the right squad. I just think they've, yeah, they 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 weren't people screaming out for selection. There, there were always going to be these problems and there were things that happened that they couldn't control, like the loss of Stokes. But as I say, even within that, you know, those limitations, I think they made it much more difficult for themselves than they might have done. And perhaps with different selectors, a different coach, and yeah, a different captain, uh, they might have at least got closer to Australia than, than this lot. I think it was, yeah, I think it was relatively telling as well, wasn't it? That, you know, obviously there's a big clamour for Stokes before the series, there was a big clamour for Stokes once England had lost the first test. But by the time it got to about, well, probably 2-0, people were like, they'd forgot, you know, just stopped talking about Stokes. I think they realised even he wouldn't be able to, you know, save the day on his own. It was, it was a lost cause. I haven't really heard his name mentioned for about a month. Well, it was partly because it also became clear that there was no way that he was... That is also true. He'd yeah. be involved. But you're right. And also, like, it's easy to, to place too much emphasis on the absence of Stokes. It clearly didn't help and if you took someone as important to their team out of Australia, like a Mitchell Stark, you know, it would have a big impact. And yeah, definitely England would have been more competitive with him. But as we've talked about many times, or at least I've talked about many times, Ben Stokes' record in Test cricket isn't as good as you might think it was, given how uh, gushingly people talk about him. And there's reasons to, to gush about him, but his averages aren't, sensational and yeah he might have made a bit of a difference but I don't know I don't know that it would have you know it would have suddenly turned it into a really competitive series 
I do think though that with bat and ball and just as a character, he had the he has the sort of explosiveness to to have made a difference. Quite how big the difference would have been, and quite what the effect of him not being there had on the other players. I don't know. Well, it's all it's impossible. Yeah, to know, it's, it's it's all counterfactual at this point. But it's one of history's great what ifs, isn't it? <laughs> or it will be. But one thing that it it de- definitely did affect was the balance of England's team. You know, we talk about how the the lower order kept getting blown away and that was a huge problem throughout the series. Well, the absence of Stokes there did make a big, big difference. The fact that it was, well, certainly at the start of the series, it was Moeen at six, then Bairstow at seven, Wokes at eight, and then the bowlers, rather than Stokes at six, Bairstow at seven, Moeen at eight, Wokes at nine. It, it's only one player, but it makes a huge difference to the uh, the solidity of that lower order and the confidence that, that would have inspired. I think this is something that gets forgotten. It's the confidence that inspires in the guys higher up as well, when they know there's so much, uh, that, you know, there's so much more to come. I think it makes a difference to the, the the confidence and the freedom with which they can bat. Yeah, so England's uh, all-rounders have been a huge strength, haven't they, over the last few years? And they really weren't in this series. Stokes wasn't there. Wokes didn't have a great one. Bairstow did all right, didn't he? But nothing too outstanding. And yeah, Moeen Ali... <laughs> Has any all-rounder ever had a worse series than Moeen Ali? He averaged 19 with the bat and he took five wickets at an average well north of 100. And two of those wickets were when Australia already had 600 on the board in the final innings of the final test. Um, So yeah, not a great series for Moeen Tain. He sort of had to play this game because Stokes wasn't there, because of the the balance of the side, etc. But even if Stokes isn't back for New Zealand... Can he still play after what's happened here? Oh, you can cut that noise. <laughs> I wouldn't play him in New Zealand. I've talked before about the difference between being dropped and not selected. I think this would feel, for me, sit somewhere in between if you were to, to not pick him. So hang on, explain that difference in, for anyone new listening. I, in, I think sometimes it's harsh. You know, if a player is out of form and you don't pick them, and people leap on it as if, oh yeah, so-and-so's been dropped. Axed. Axed, as if it's, yeah, it's a sort of a one-way ticket to Nowheresville because you're just, you're gone and you're never coming back. Whereas actually, there's no doubt Moeen out. you know, well, you would argue that his record overall isn't good enough. I, I think he has been good enough at times and he's shown, uh, he's shown a lot of ability. He doesn't seem to be getting much better, which is a bit of a concern. But yeah, he, he's, there's, no, there's no doubt he's part of the, the England talent pool from which you would be drawing players on kind of regardless of you know if you ignore sort of form you just said these are the players but at the moment you'd have to say he's not doing uh enough to warrant selection certainly for or obviously not in this series and i think for new zealand yeah he should be uh he should be left behind yeah he's certainly got to be part of the conversation hasn't he in this case i don't know that there necessarily is someone else screaming out for selection mason crane may keep his place but talking about delusion i mean it was quite embarrassing i thought the way that some of the english commentators and i don't know whether commentators is the right word or you might say cheerleaders i thought it was quite embarrassing the way they were talking about mason crane's performance i mean he he bowled okay didn't he and he, he he's clearly full of promise but he ended up with one for 190 amongst the worst figures ever for a bowler on debut I, by no means am i writing him off after that performance I, he's 20 years old and I, I'm, I'm excited to see how he develops but the way they were talking about him i just again I, it comes back to the thing of delusion and is it 
super smart to talk about him in that way because a lot of England supporters are justifiably feeling quite angry about the way England have gone. And when Australia rack up 600 and England only takes seven wickets and a leg spinner only gets one of those and goes for the best part of 200, to then sit through the commentators going on about how brilliantly he bowled, I don't know, it was, it was annoying. Yeah, I mean, it, you'd hope it's good experience for him. Obviously, there have been spin bowlers who have not come back after difficult matches in the past but yeah for me I thought I kind of you know and it, it's a shame to say but sort of the less said the better and I'm sure he'd probably be thinking that too because as you say one for 193 and it, you know probably a bit of a thankless task I, I think we probably said it before the series that we feared that this might be the case that England would arrive way out of the the series at Sydney and, and he would be chucked in for a game and you know bowled 48 overs he, he put in a good shift but yeah, I think you sort of, he'd probably feel you just want to move on now, get well, yeah. on to the next one. Absolutely. And, and weirdly, this has happened in a few recent Ashes series, hasn't it? Where England have debuted a spinner in the final test. And it's not gone as badly for Mason Crane as it did for some of those others. Simon Kerrigan, obviously, uh, was never seen again. Scott Borthwick played that one test. Actually did quite a lot better than Mason Crane and was never seen again. It's not gone as badly as that. It certainly wasn't a Kerrigan moment. He bowled quite well. He bowled some really good balls. And as I say, I'm genuinely excited about his potential. But it's almost like, as you say, the less said the better. Don't say anything about it. Like, be excited about his potential, but don't bang on about how brilliant he is because there's not much evidence of that yet. Coming into the series, I was mainly worried about the batting. But I'm leaving it much more worried about the bowling. I'm not unworried about the batting. Uh, But as I said... On the last show, I think there's actually been a few flickers of progress in the batting lineup. Yeah, only 300s. They've not scored nearly enough runs, particularly in the first innings. Uh, but Milan's done really well. Stoneman did very well at the beginning. He's had a very poor last couple of tests, but he, he looked good in the first three, didn't he? And, and you have to give the selectors some credit there. You know, Stoneman, obviously, uh, a recent pick. Milan, who's not someone who I thought would cut it at test level, has been really good. So, yeah, having criticised the selectors, they deserve some credit. Um, but yeah, there's been a few flickers, not a huge amount, but at least the batsmen have the excuse that they were up against quality bowlers. And this is, you know, again, I was worried about that batsmen coming into the series, but that was partly because you knew how good Australia's bowlers were. They've not done that well, but they've had to face Hazelwood, Stark, Cummins, Lyon, whereas the bowlers have done at least as badly but aside from Steve Smith, as you said earlier on, the guys they've been beaten by are not of that class necessarily in Kawaja, the Marsh brothers. You know, good players and they've been brilliant in the series, but coming into it, not people that you'd have thought England ought to be scared of. And the fact that the England bowlers have been so toothless, that's got to be worrying, hasn't it? Yeah. And, it, you, know, it, it, you know, it's a sort of slow motion transition at the moment, isn't it? From the, you know, the, the glory days of, of Broad and Anderson. And, you know, obviously Anderson was the pick of the bowlers for England and, and did reasonably well overall and tough to criticise him too much. But the rest of them, yeah, uh, poor. I, I certainly expected more out of Broad. Uh, he didn't deliver. And then the other options just, it, it was sort of, I don't know, you're sort of looking around for the best of a bad bunch, which is a real shame. It's night and day when you compare this England attack to the Australia attack. The consistency, it's a special attack that Australia had for this series. So in, in that sense, yeah, you can maybe dial down the disappointment slightly because they have been so good and they look so good. 
But yeah, England were just so one-dimensional. Yeah, yeah well, Steve Smith must have. Lo- you know, he came into the series, yeah, you know, a fabulous batsman with with an amazing record in recent years, and you know, for him, it, it just wasn't difficult. Yeah, that's right. And, and one-dimensional, I think, is is the right word. And and some people might say, and and they're right up to the point that the discussion about pace is overstated. And obviously, you know, there's been a lot of talk of how slow this England attack is. But it's just so one-dimensional. It might be different if England had, I don't know, a left armour, someone else besides Anderson who could really move the ball, really reverse swing it. I don't know, just something. Like people have pointed out, someone, I can't remember who it was, tweeted at us pointing out after Philander's performance in Cape Town, you know, oh, why are people banging on about pace when you look at Philander and he's not quick? And he was brilliant in Australia last year and didn't bowl quick, obviously. And Anderson has been really good and he's not quick. But if you don't have the skill of an Anderson or a Flander and you're bowling at 78 miles an hour, then you've got nothing. Yeah, if, at least if you're bowling 90 miles an hour, you're making it uncomfortable for the batsman, regardless of what else you're doing. It just was very one-dimensional and very uninspiring. And it's as toothless an attack as I can remember England fielding. And again, that was quite predictable, I think. Coming into the series, it was quite predictable that that is what would happen. Am I coming across as cheerful and upbeat as I feel like I am? No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, it it was just disappointing. I mean, there there were moments, weren't there, like Overton getting Smith. That was exciting. That was a moment that got me out of my, out of my chair. <laughs> but, you know, you, you're just struggling to remember times where the bowlers really got on top. Uh, well, they didn't really, did they? I think Australia's batsmen more or less universally kind of got in and got themselves out if they did. Uh, yeah, you know, Curran coming in was you know, lively in sort of character, but not in terms of his bowling. Uh, Jake Ball, obviously, was, you know, it was a very short flash of ball at the, the, the top of the series. Uh, it's another unpleasant image. <laughs> but, he, but, you know, we didn't expect... Tony, don't worry, Tony's not taking his trousers off. Yeah. He's still got them on. I don't, yeah, it's, it's just, it, you know, it, it wasn't, just, wasn't a very electric, you know, electric performance at all. It was the opposite of that. And you know, Which test or which day was it where I think England's body language was criticised a bit? And I think at the time we, we sort of, I maybe felt this is slightly harsh, but there was no real, yeah, electric energy. There was no spell where you thought, yeah. Well, there was maybe Adelaide. That was probably the only thing, and that you know, and that was the the one sort of channel that maybe yeah. England had an opportunity to to exploit. And it was all too brief. And I remember you saying about um, Moeen's body language when he basically walked off before Nathan Lyon had even taken the catch, the return catch off his own bowling. Yeah. And there were just quite a lot of moments like that where it, you know, England looked like they knew they were beaten before they actually were. In terms of Australia, I asked you this question after the Ashes were won in Perth. Did we and did people more generally underestimate Australia coming into this series, do you think? After these five tests, how good a team would you say this is? I think we, well, we didn't really because we both thought they were going to win comfortably. True. In that, so in that but then sense, equally people were like, oh, they're there for the taking. Yeah, yeah, yeah they've got true, problems, yeah. but Australia have got loads of problems of their own. I think possibly we underestimated, well, I think possibly we, we wouldn't have expected Australia's bowling attack to, to be so uniformly good. You know, Lyon was, you know, was definitely more impressive than I expected uh, from the get-go, wasn't it? You know, it was wickets and control. From the, from the, pretty much from the first morning, 
so yeah yeah he was exceptional and then the the three three paces you know apart from start missing one test i don't think we would have you know so between them they played uh 14 out of the 15 tests yeah that makes sense (laughs) between them they played 14 out of 15 matches i'm quite glad there weren't 15 (laughs) tests in this series to be honest you know we had another 10 to go i think that would be a bit of a struggle would we, do we necessarily expect that? I don't know. You no, know. well, Pat Cummins playing five tests is quite unexpected, isn't it? And, and you know, it, it is quite remarkable that the four of them took all the wickets. They were all so close. Well, you know, what was it? 21, 21, 23, 22. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the averages were all much of a muchness, obviously, lying slightly. Uh, and the wickets were so spread around throughout like they were evenly distributed throughout all the matches there were only, only there were only two five wicket hauls hazelwood got one in adelaide and stark got one uh i can't remember where it's all a bit of a blur now but yeah stark got one hazelwood got one and that's quite remarkable isn't it, it basically just all the way through everybody was chipping in so, i mean yeah we, we we definitely could have and did predict that the, that the bowlers would be that impressive but we maybe wouldn't have predicted that the batsman would have been this good steve smith yes but not so much the Marsh brothers. Um, you know, they did have problems. Bancroft had a poor series, but that obviously doesn't, you know, that goes under the radar when your team wins 4-0. Warner wasn't that great until the series was over. Kawaja struggled until the final test, but they had more than enough, didn't they? And a lot of, you know, you've got to give those selectors a lot of credit in a way that you don't have to give England selectors a lot of credit because they made some big calls before the series. Even someone like Tim Payne, came in and had a superb series and yeah the marsh brothers not many people would have you know not many people felt particularly excited about the prospect of, of either of them coming back but they've both been absolutely sensational speaking of the bowlers if they can keep those bowlers fit they could have i think a seriously good team on their hands and also you'd think they could have a real good chance of winning in england next time because those bowlers will enjoy english conditions particularly josh hazelwood do you think they could you know you said england have lost but australia haven't exactly done brilliantly in England this century. Do you think that could change next year? Who's favourites for that series in England at this point? I think at this point, you've got to make Australia favourites based on Smith and the bowling attack. I think, you know, but the the game that Stark missed, you know, Jackson Bird came in and if he's the best of the rest, you know, that will be encouraging for England. So, you know, if one or even two of those guys aren't quite there in a couple of years then that changes the complexion. So there is, I, th- I think there is still uncertainty because one series does not make a, a, a run of series, does it? <laughs> uh, one summer does not make a swallow. Exactly. Yeah. But that's not to diminish what they've done or diminish what they could do because, yeah, that, yeah, for Australian fans, that's got to be hugely exciting. Uh, and I, I think in the batting as well, I suppose the, the selectors now have a slight conundrum because... You know, obviously they're going to they're going to persist with the the guys that have done well, but then in some ways there were sort of shock selections, maybe slightly in their eyes, I guess horses for courses selections. So if they then have a poor series next up, you know the likes of Shaw Marsh and and Payne. So again, it doesn't it's not a settled side. They haven't just, but maybe maybe they have. Maybe they've stumbled across a, a great unit. I don't know. Well, maybe, but yeah, yeah, you're right. It's it, it's hard to know and and they weren't given the sternest examination. We talked about how toothless that England bowling attack is. They're going to go to South Africa in a couple of months. People like Sean Marsh, Mitchell Marsh, Tim Payne will get a much clearer idea of whether they were just made to look good by the England bowlers or whether they really have become 
world class batsmen. Yeah, no, I think it is more. too early days. Yeah, uh, but you know, you know, that's going to be a hell of a contest in terms of the two bowling lineups. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting, actually, isn't it? Very, very exciting prospect. We're going to talk about South Africa in a minute, but before we do that, would you like a composite eleven? I've literally been waiting <laughs> for days now. It's the only reason you do this. Isn't yeah, it? It, it's kind of it's, it just distills everything else down into yeah. That's all you need to know, really. It makes everything we've just said for the past like eighty-five minutes <laughs> totally irrelevant. What I've done, Tone, is uh, I've looked at the series as a whole. I've looked at the two sides, uh, and I've put together one eleven based on that. Some might describe it as a composite eleven. Uh, so this is it. Opening up, I've got Warner and Cook. Then I've got Steve Smith, controversial, but David Milan, Sean Marsh, Mitchell Marsh, Tim Payne, Mitchell Stark, Pat Cummins, Josh Hazelwood, Nathan Lyon. So it's basically Australia, but with David Milan instead of Usman Kawaja and Alistair Cook instead of Cam Bancroft. What do you make of that? Tough to disagree. I mean, I mean, Cook, Cook obviously had a shocker of a series, but none of the four openers actually did that well. Warner got some runs at the end, uh, but not really in the first three games. Uh, and yeah, Stoneman did okay, but not great. Bancroft had a bad one. Uh, and yeah, Cook was, was poor for four tests, but that 247 has been enough to, to elevate him into the team for me. 244, sorry. Yeah. I think it's tough to disagree with that because, you know, however well Cook played, Bancroft's getting nowhere near that composite 11. And yeah, it definitely uh, underlines just how dominant Australia have been, doesn't it, with nine players. Well, I went in with five England players in my composite 11. Your pre-series composite yeah. 11, yeah. So that's disappointing. Mm. Who were those five? Can you remember? Uh, yeah, I've got them written down, actually. Cook, Root, Bairstow, Ali and Broad. Yeah, there was no place for Ali in my, in my team. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a surprise. I mean, it's interesting, you know, there's been a lot of discussion already hasn't there about you know what England's squad is going to look like for the series in New Zealand I, I, I mean I slightly disagree with a couple of you know I think I would personally persist with Stoneman Vince and Milan for New Zealand I definitely keep Stoneman and Milan Vince I don't think so just because as I say you know he does have this very obvious weakness and he always he, he looks so good doesn't he but he always gets out in and almost always in the same fashion uh, and I don't think he's going to find it much easier against New Zealand's bowlers in those conditions. Yeah, I, no, I agree. I mean, but then I, I, you know, I think I feel like it's harsh to single out any one batsman out of that lineup. You know, when they've all been under the cosh somewhat for you know, in a tough series against a very good mm. bowling attack, and I kind of feel like Vin, you know three isn't the spot for Vince, is it? No, I, I, you know, I'd give him a go further down the order. I, I mean, I would. In, I would insist on Root going up to three and I might even think about putting Bearstow at four and just really kind of stack the deck uh, with England's best players because you'd have to say that on paper England's three best batsmen are Cook, Root and Bearstow so you know if you put them all in the top four that just has a much better feel to it for me. What would be your side for the first test in New Zealand if you thought about it? Well I definitely keep Stoneman and Milan so so that's my top five there. It depends if Stokes is there. Assuming that he's not someone at six. I mean, I, I really want to see Sam Northeast given a go, but it doesn't seem like they want to do that. Might bring in Ben Folkes as the keeper. And yeah, England have got to find a spinner. And I don't know that Mason's Crane's ready. So 
you know, I'd, I'd go to Jack Leach. He's been the best spinner in county cricket for the last few seasons. Give him a whirl. So I've seen a couple of people saying, basically, chop Overton and Curran and bring in their brothers, which <laughs> seems like, you know, neither disgraced themselves nor kind of lit it up. I think Overton showed a bit more, but then he perhaps had more favourable match, uh, or how many matches he played, or favourable matches, rather, two matches uh, to show it in. So I think that, I don't know, that would be, be a tough one to, you know, just like swap the kit over and yeah. on the way in. It'll be an awkward Christmas next year, won't it? Hasib Habib's name has been mentioned again. Obviously, the, the, what happened with him was pretty tough, but then he hasn't necessarily lit, lit up the game. Yeah, has he since? no, I, I don't think he's ready yet either. Um, he needs to score some runs in, in counter cricket this season. Well, it'll be interesting, certainly. I mean, just quickly, looking at the series as a whole, you know, obviously... It was a very one-sided contest. Beforehand, we were very excited about it. You, you said you were more excited for this series than you had been for any series since 2005. You know, we, we really did think we could be in for an absolute belter. In the end, would it be fair to say that it wasn't an absolute belter? I think that would be fair to say. Uh... You know, there's been talk, hasn't there, about Ashes cricket being in trouble in the aftermath of this series. I think the headline of one of the Australian newspapers was Rivalry Dead. Which, obviously, on the face of it, is a bit absurd because, like, you could say in the 90s you could have said that the rivalry was dead because Australia won and won comfortably every single series. That isn't happening because England are winning in England and Australia are winning in Australia. But does that actually mean that the rivalry is dead in a different way where it's very predictable who's going to win each series? And we haven't had a good, close Ashes series for quite a while now. No, I agree. You know... as you said at the top of the show, you know, the last series in, well, the series in England have been closer. There's no doubt the year 2005 obviously was a classic. I wonder if that's just changed, you know, that's kind of raised the bar to an unachievable level for Ashes series. You know, it's possibly, there's never going to be an Ashes series that exciting. Or even a test series that exciting. Yeah. Uh, Now the last one on paper was was exciting but actually at the time we felt quite cold afterwards i think just because of the sort of ridiculous swings of result yeah the ashes is always going to be huge it's it's still the next ashes series is still going to be hyped people are still going to love watching it i mean i think you know the barmy army will still have had a good time in australia (laughs) and there'll still be a lot of people ready to go out next time england play in australia in that sense, you know, I don't think that it's going to suffer. I, I do think there's definitely uh, there's definitely a cause to sort of maybe think about moving the schedule around a little bit, particularly because you know Sydney and Melbourne have just been let down completely. The rivalry or you know, the, the the contest is, is stacked in favour of the home side anyway. You know, the, the fact that it always starts at the Gabatoire. You know, obviously, cricket Australia have designed. You know, it's designed to be tough for England to do well there. So, yeah, I guess it is a, it's a tricky balance. Well, yeah, I mean, and I think that's fair enough. I, I don't have a yeah. problem with Australia doing what they can to win and England doing what they can to win Quite. When, when the situation is reversed. With the exception of, I do think there should be more of an effort made to give the touring side better, more competitive warm-up matches. The, you know, the, the touring side are guaranteed to play, whether it's the A-teams or, or someone that's going to give them a proper game and not playing basically schoolboys which they you know or or club cricketers which they 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 generally do at the moment 
And this is one of the key reasons why test teams are finding it so hard to win away from home full stop. It's because they either don't play enough or even any warm-up fixtures or the ones they do are, are not competitive. And that's not good. Yes, Australia should do everything they can. You know, It's fair enough that they would do what they can to win the series. But it's got to be in their interest for it to be more competitive than this one was. And, that, and that, it has flagged up a few things in terms of the long-term health of Ashes cricket. like the, the fact that we've had these two dead rubbers and they have been so flat has changed the way that we've thought about the series. After Perth, although England have had, you know, although the Ashes was over, I wasn't feeling like super jaded by it. They'd been reasonably enjoyable games. Certainly Adelaide was a very good game. Um, these two games have been so flat and partly that's the pitches. Like, uh, it's been quite surprising how bad or how how flat the pitches have been how slow the pitches have been they've not felt very australian these pitches and that's not good like it you know more generally in test cricket it really have to be better pitches than this um but it's interesting you, you know you bring up the the series in 2015 and were those wild swings in momentum it was really like high octane cricket all the way through and actually to a point that was absurd and to a point that we stopped enjoying it quite so much so you know you want to find a balance but this has been completely the opposite where it's been really attritional cricket the whole way through. It's been very low run rates. And I haven't got a problem with that most of the time, but it's not been, certainly in these dead rubbers when there's less on the line, it's, it's, it's been harder and harder to kind of get motivated to get out of the bed in the morning uh, to watch, you know, two runs and over, Steve Smith just quietly yeah. accumulating three or four wickets in the day at most. I do think, and I, I'm sure I've said it before, but I do think that, that to a certain extent, Test fans are very picky. Yeah. Uh, you know they don't Hard want the runs. Please. They don't want the runs scored too quickly because that's just not Test cricket. They don't want the runs scored too slowly because that's that is boring. Basically, the perfect Test finishes probably the afternoon or you know preferably the evening of the fifth day. Uh, there's an exciting. I don't know. I make, is, I make no apologies for, <laughs> for my feelings, Stone. I don't know. It is, yeah, maybe we just expect too much. Maybe it's just the 2005 has scuppered us forever. But I mean, what we feared, you know, and what, what did we get? Two innings defeats and a 10 wicket defeat, which is desperate. That is desperate. That is really poor. Uh, I mean, genuinely waking up on the last day in Adelaide thinking and you know, had a good chance of winning and then that not coming off. That was probably the, that was the moment. That wokes DRS review is probably the moment the Ashes died this year for me. <laughs> well, it's over now, isn't it? That was at three in the morning. What are you going to do with your three in the mornings now? Well, I think you can guess. Football manager, is it? Just back yeah, to... Yeah, just back up. Just back to round the clock. Push the alarm back. Yeah. <laughs> Football manager, basically, yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We mentioned the New Zealand test, Adam. In fact, the uh, England squad for that series has just been announced, which seems a bit late in the day. Not literally before the series, but it is quite late when we're recording this. Uh, but the big news is, that, and it seems quite harsh, and as Crick Info put it, uh, well, I'll read you the first paragraph. Liam Livingston's been drafted into England squad for the two-test tour of New Zealand in March and April after Gary Balance paid the price for England's 4-0 thrashing in the Ashes despite not featuring at any stage of the series. I knew it was Balance's fault. <laughs> I bloody knew it. That is really harsh. That is really harsh. He's basically lambasted for being selected. <laughs> yeah, now he's got the chop. That is a chop, I'm afraid. That is a chop. Yeah, just maybe his quiz questions weren't good enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very disappointing pub quiz this year. I just imagine like Joe Root hauled into the boardroom to face Alan Sugar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who are you bringing back in here? Well, it's got to be Gary. It's got to be Gary Balance, Lord Sugar. He did nothing. He didn't contribute at all. That does seem harsh. Gary, tell me why you shouldn't be fired. So Vince Stoneman and Milan as the sort of three question mark batsmen going into the, the winter anyway all uh, all there well thanks for that breaking news tone uh let's move on now to talk about a test match that was taking place seven thousand miles away from england's uh from england england's wilting display in sydney uh over in cape town the home side were playing india in the first test of that series uh, and what a fantastic test match it turned out to be on a very spicy pitch uh, South Africa winning the toss, batting first. Uh, they were reduced to 12 for three on the first morning. Uh, but a fantastic counter-attack uh, by A.B. de Villiers back in the side. He made 65. Fafti plus the captain with 62. Uh, meant that they were eventually all out for 286. And that looked like a very good score on that wicket. India, in response, were bowled out for 209. Uh, it could have been much worse when they were 92 for seven. Uh, but a blistering 93 from just 95 balls from Hardik Pandya uh, meant that they got quite a bit closer than it seemed like they were going to. Nonetheless, South Africa were well ahead of the game when they were about, what, 130, 140 ahead, just two wickets down. But India came out on that fourth morning. Their fast bowlers bowling brilliantly, uh, and they took all 10 South African wickets for less than 80 runs. South Africa went from 52 without loss to 130 all out. Uh, Mohamed Shami taking three wickets Jasper Bumrah on debut three wickets uh, that set India 208 to win when they were 30 for none South Africa would have been getting very nervous uh, but Vernon Philander returned with a sensational display he took six for 42 as India collapsed to be 135 all out and that gave South Africa the win by 72 runs so this was a terrific test match tone a breathless test match uh, we can get into the detail in a second, but just firstly, after what was, as we say, a pretty drab last couple of Ashes tests, it was just great to see a test like this, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's exciting stuff. And actually, you know, as much as we talk, uh, talked about, you know, how good and enticing a prospect that South African, uh, you know, quick quartet is, yeah, a lot of credit has to go to, to India's quicks as well. They, they did well. I mean, Kumar, you know, first innings, started very very well you know, Jasper Bumran debut did well too 
so that would be encouraging. I guess it's just you know it's now on the the Indian batsmen to to find a way to to resist. There was, I, I saw there was a little bit of criticism around of their you know, perhaps the, some of the Indian batsmen were playing a little bit loose and not not playing the match situation. Well, yeah, that's right. They, 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 there were some um, fairly uh, uh, confident shots being played, and, and also it in some regard it comes down to who was selected. And you know, I mentioned about um you know about england making it more difficult for themselves than they they might have done in their selection india weirdly overconfident i think in in some of their their selections for the the batting lineup they went with shikha dawan uh ahead of kl rahul at the top of the order and they went with um rohit sharma ahead of ajinka rahani i don't know they were just sort of blithely going for guys who have done really well particularly in white ball cricket recently but you know dawan and sharma are superb one-day batsman, but they've not always done that well in the test arena, whereas Rahul and, and Rahane are like proper uh, old-fashioned test match batsmen. And you'd, you would have thought that those are the kinds of guys they would have needed against the South African attack on uh, very challenging pitches uh, for Indian players. And I don't know, it was, a, it was sort of an accident waiting to happen in some ways. Potentially, that's the sort of confidence that comes from winning about 80 tests at home in the last... Two years. Well, yeah, and uh, as we said last time, you know, this is obviously a big series for India. They're the number one side in the world, but they've got a lot to prove away from home. And you just wonder whether they've, again, they've been slightly deluded in thinking. And I, I think that that's really overstating it because they actually did play really well here and certainly could have won the game. Yeah, they went far. Um, but, you know, in maybe thinking that they're a slightly better side than they are because they've won so much. Uh, but actually, you know, they're, it, since January 2011... They've won one game away from home apart from in the Caribbean. So that's really not a great record. Very few, if any, of these players have any experience of winning away from home whatsoever. Um, so, yes, it was, as I say, I think it was a slightly overconfident decision to, to play those kind of uh, more attacking players. But having said that, so I think, you know, there were, I think they were actually quite impressive in this game. And certainly the way they came back, the way they fought back in the third innings of the match, South Africa, you know, 50 for none, well over 100 ahead, looking like they were going to set, you know, a massive target to come back, take all 10 wickets. As you say, the fast bowlers doing really well. You know, they've really been impressive over the last year or so, the Indian fast bowlers, haven't they? And, you know, coming back and, and dragging themselves back into the game, I thought that was very impressive. It was, it was just unfortunate for them that they, they couldn't quite, they, they left themselves a bit too much to do. And those South African bowlers in the end were, were just a bit too good. But yeah, they could easily have won the game. There were just, just a couple of things that let them down, maybe allowing South Africa to get a few too many in the first innings. Also, the catching, they, they dropped a few uh, fairly straightforward chances in the slips, whereas South Africa took some absolute blinders. And, and in low-scoring games like this, fine margins, isn't it? Yeah, and certainly they're not to be written off, are they? You know, it's all to play for in this second test. You mentioned those South African bowlers. Quite remarkable, wasn't it? As well as Keshav Maharaj, who looks better and better all the time. I think he's a really underrated bowler. They had four fast bowlers in Dale Steyn, Kagiza Rabada, Mornay Morkel, and Vernon Philander, uh, who was the match winner in the end. Steyn broke down injured, didn't he? So they, they didn't finish the game with, with all four bowlers bowling. But in that first innings, it was, yeah, what, Steyn and Philander opening up and then Rabada first change, Morkel second change. This is an attack where Mornay Morkel is the fourth seamer. You know, people have been saying this is the best quartet since, I don't know, it, it's the best quartet since, since when? Hazelwood. <laughs> well, no, quartet. Cummins. Fast bowling quartet. Oh, okay. Four, so yeah, so not, not just three, four. Four fast bowlers 
Can you think of what the only one I can think of, and this is kind of, you know, inevitable that I would think of this is England in two thousand and five. Holgard, Harmison, Jones, Flintoff. I, I can't really think of any other fast bowling quartets in our not in, in the, the post Atherton era. era. You know, you can go back to the West Indies in the eighties, I suppose, but this has got to be right up there. Since well, then. yeah, I mean, Rabada's the top ranked bowler in Test cricket. Staines, the, I mean, you know, many would say the best fast bowler there's been in the last five years, 10 years. Oh, yeah, maybe longer than that, yeah. 15, 20. And then you've got Philander, who is just brilliant. And then, yeah, and then, as you say, Morning Morkel, who's a right handful, at least, uh, yeah, as the sort of man bringing up the rear of the, the quartet. There's, there's no let up, is there? No. How good is Vernon Philander? Very good. I mean, he had that ridiculous start to his career, didn't he? But yeah, he is a fine bowler. Well, he had a ridiculous start, middle and, and continuing and continuation yeah. of his career. He averages 21 with the ball after 48 tests. There's just no doubt that he is one of the best bowlers of this era, but still continues to be underrated sometimes, I think, partly because he isn't super fast. But yeah, he's just such a handful. And yeah, it took, what, three wickets in four balls to finish it off. It was very exciting. Duplessis said it was the, the most enjoyable test he's played in, I think. And it's one of the most enjoyable tests I've watched for a while. I didn't do as much as Duplessis to, uh, <laughs> to bring that about, but I feel I had some part. Yeah. Well, that's about it for the World Cricket Show this week. Bit of nostalgia there, Tone, for the long-time listeners. I'm off for a bubble bath with Michael Bublé, and Tony's off to turn his damp January... It's a real deluge, uh, both off to uh, console ourselves, cheer ourselves up in, a, in our own particular ways. Yeah. Uh, but despite the very depressing stuff that we've talked about tonight, did you enjoy yourself on this episode, Tone? Yeah, it's been all right, hasn't it? We got through it. You've really stunk the place up. Yeah, I need a shower, uh, desperately. <laughs> in more ways than one, you've really stunk the place up tonight. Uh, but we got through it. Yeah. Can't believe it's all over. I know. The ashes and this, this episode... Thank you to everyone who stuck with us throughout our Ashes winter. We've produced seven podcasts around this Ashes series, Tone. Can you believe that? Uh, so, yeah, we might need a little bit of a breather now, if only for a couple of weeks. Uh, but we will return, because there's always cricket, isn't there? <laughs> when you look back over the last few weeks, it is, it's, it's not very thoughtful of the Ashes to plonk itself over Christmas, is it? it is, it's damn hard. It's been hard to fit this in. Like, it's e well, it's easy. Certainly the first couple of tests are quite easy to watch, but uh, it does get tough. Uh, I suppose the result, you know, don't want to go back over all ground here, but you know, had it been closer, had it been more exciting, certainly would have made life easier. It would have been, we'd have been more motivated exactly. to, uh, to prioritise it. But yeah, I have to say that coming in tonight, because as you say, we, we've done this late. You were at football. I had to uh, host an event. You know, it's just part, <laughs> part of the course on my uh, Wednesday nights. Uh, but it's partly why my voice is getting quite croaky now. But yeah, rocked up here at like whatever it was, quarter to 10 or something. You buzzed me in and just walking through, like walking up the stairs up to your flat. I was just like, bloody hell, I'm here again. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I've seen the inside of this building far too much this winter, Tone. Yeah. But as you say, if uh, if the results had turned out differently, I'd probably feel less depressed about it. Yeah, exactly. Those stairs would be less depressing to me. 
So yeah, we're going to need a few weeks off now. It could be something of a busman's holiday, though, because uh, we will be bringing you at least one other podcast in that time. That's all I'm going to say about it now. Mm. But that's a real uh, teaser, a teaser. Isn't it? Yeah. And uh, teaser might be the right word. It's not a podcast about Maltesers, <laughs> although you could do that. Back in the day, yeah, certainly would have done. Do you still eat Maltesers? Yeah. Do you, st- do you still eat multiple packets of Maltesers a day like you used to? No, Maltesers, no. Sort of <laughs> moved on. Well, I'm, I'm off it for, for January. Right. Yeah, but uh, I'll be back. You're not doing wet January so much as hungry January. I've, I've had one so, bottle of beer in January. That's so all I've had. Low blood sugar January. Yeah, exactly. That's why I'm slumped in this chair. It's not so much wet January as grumpy January. I mean, full disclosure, I now love avocado, which is... Oh, get out. preposterous. Come on. I know, it's preposterous. You... Oh. you see, you're, you're now a man who drinks wine, who drinks lattes, and who eats avocado. Yeah. I am a, I am a, a walking, talking if, tragedy. If Tony Kerr circa 2009 could see you now, he would be violently ill. I remember I always enjoyed a, t- a glass of wine. You know, now I take it as part of a, a balanced alcohol diet. <laughs> right, but certainly lattes and avocado were way off my radar yeah, a few yeah. years ago. Well, I don't know who I think I am. Everything was off your radar <laughs> apart from Yorkshire puddings and Maltesers and Ribena. That was, your, yeah. that was always your calling card, was a bottle of Ribena with a Malteser packet stuffed inside. That's how you knew that Tony Kerr had been round if you found Just several. left, <laughs> yeah. Left around, like never put in the bin. Just left at various places around, you know, around the joint. That's how my mum knew you'd be <laughs> Yeah. Oh, uh, Tony's been here again, has he? Do miss the old Ribena. This is getting very niche now, but I do miss the old Ribena bottles with a wide neck. <laughs> a wide, uh, a wide mm. top, because, uh, yeah, made it much easier to put the Maltesa bag in. <laughs> God, those, yeah, those were the days. Yeah, were, weren't they? Those God, were the days. What did we get up to? <laughs> Uh, well, there'll be more of this kind of stuff uh, on the next World Cricket Show, which, as I say, will be in a few weeks' time. But between now and then, if you want to get more involved, we're all over social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash cricket show. We're on Twitter at cricket show. We're on Instagram at world cricket show. You can send us an email, worldcricketshow at gmail.com. Write a review for us on iTunes. Uh, if you've enjoyed these Ashes podcasts, uh, yeah, you might consider just writing us a review or leaving us a rating could be on itunes or whatever platform uh, you use because it really does help to to bring new people to the show so we would be immensely grateful for that as i say if you have enjoyed our output over the winter uh, and if you want to support the show financially we're hugely grateful to everyone who supports us on patreon at patreon.com slash cricket show it does help to keep us in business it's paid for this recording equipment and we've got lots more big plans for the future i think haven't we yeah, we've been talking about our plans for a while. <laughs> but there are there are plans. They exist. There are plans. It's like kind of like when you get like plans for your house done with no intention of ever sort of <laughs> it's like the extension. Yeah. Got the yeah. plans done. We've got planning permission. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, but you know, yeah. one day. Mm. One day. Yeah. They're in the drawer. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> this Patreon money is gonna fund a conservatory on my <laughs> on my house. And, uh, a very small conservatory. And a new carpet or something for yeah. Tony. All right, well, stay in school, everybody. We will return in a few weeks' time, but until then, that's all from me. That's all from Tony. Bye bye for now. Cheers.
Y'all can smell your fear Ba-da-da-ba-ba Ba-da-da-ba-ba Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.